When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Red or Dead is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new mystery books to read but overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for, and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat your shelf and support an indie too. And TBR is also available as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to Red or Dead, a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about the world of mysteries and thrillers. This is episode 84, and we're recording on Tuesday, August 25th. I'm Katie McLean Horner, along with Rincey Abraham, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. Hi, Katie. Rincey. Hello. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> oh, I'm I'm just dandy. We are, we have uh, the new cat in the house, and... We are having to put him in a timeout every five or ten minutes because he keeps ambushing our other cat and driving him bonkers. So we're trying to train him not to jump on the other cat when he's not looking. And it doesn't seem to be sticking. Oh, no. <laughs> he, oh, he's, old, he's not even three years old yet. So he's still got a lot of kitten left in him. But our other cat is 14. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he is so grumpy. I mean, he's so sweet. And I love that cat to death. But he is so old and cranky. And he just does not have the patience for a three-year-old cat jumping on him and hiding behind the couch and jumping out at him every time he walks past. So we keep having to put Houdini in the bathroom for like five minutes. And then he comes out and then he just jumps on Gilbert again. And so we we have a couple of other tricks that we're going to that we're going to try to get him to knock it off but and the other problem is that he's so dang cute <laughs> and he knows it. Yeah, I think that's like the hardest part of like training kittens and puppies and stuff like that cuz like there's a certain part of you that really loves what it's doing even though you know it's not great behavior. <laughs> yeah, and then he after we we where do we try to distract him with other toys? Like, here, you can play with this. That's not Gilbert's tail. Stop biting Gilbert's tail. And sometimes that works, but then Gilbert walks past and he just does this cute little chirp, this little meow. It's like, Burr! and when he sees Gilbert run past it, so it's, it feels like a little bit of a losing battle, but he's so dang cute. So we're, so we're slowly losing our minds, but in an adorable way. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's the best way possible for you to lose your mind. I guess so. If you have a choice of how to lose your mind, you know, bringing in a three-year-old cat with your senior cat it isn't, may, maybe isn't the worst way to go. But we are, we are steadily heading down that road. 
Yeah, I have like no way to sympathize is probably the best word because I've never owned a pet. So I only know about like the stories from all of my friends and stuff like that. And I honestly have no idea how anyone handles owning a pet that can like live outside of a cage. (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand how you deal with it. I mean, my sister has a dog and everything. So like I'm around plenty of pets. My best friend has a cat. So like I'm aware of how these things go. But then like my sister will be like, yeah, my uh, our dog like tried to eat a rabbit outside and then threw up inside of our house. I'm like, gross. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that that's that's the the stuff that's a little annoying. And I was spoiled with because with Gilbert and our cat Star who we lost last month, they spoiled us because they were so chill, mellow, easygoing cats. They didn't get into anything. They didn't hide. They they weren't even that playful. They were just like middle-aged cats that liked to snuggle together. They were so low-key. And now I have to remember what it's like to have a normal cat in the house, which means he's bouncing off the walls and getting into stuff and hiding in places that we didn't even think he could fit. Like, just before we started recording, I was watching him in the bathroom. He was standing in the sink, and so I turned the faucet on a little bit, and so he started playing with the faucet for a few minutes. And again, it was adorable, but I also am like, I have not had to deal with this. Gilbert and Star did not do this. So it's an adjustment, but an adorable one. And if you follow me on Twitter, I do post pictures of the new cat, so... There you go. Now, I always think about it like if I were to ever adopt a pet and it being like a cat or a dog, I don't know what I would actually get. But I feel like I would go the route of getting something that's older. Oh, yeah. I don't think I have the stamina to handle having like a puppy or kitten running around my house. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. It's For me, it's like with children, like they're adorable. And then I get to hand them back to their owner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> to their owner. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> let's jump into the first sponsor. Woohoo! So uh, this episode is sponsored by Size Zero by Abigail Mangan. Condom dresses and space helmets have debuted on fashion runways. A dead body becomes the trend when a coat made of human skin saunters down fashion's biggest stage. The body is identified as Annabelle Lee, the teenager who famously disappeared over a decade ago from her boyfriend's New York City mansion. This new evidence casts suspicion back on the former boyfriend, Cecil LeClaire. Now a monk, he is forced to return to his dark and absurd childhood home to clear his name. He teams up with Ava Germain, a renegade ex-model, and together they investigate the depraved and lawless modeling industry behind Cecil's family fortune. So this is a book, they've sponsored us before, but like literally every time I read the synopsis of this book, I'm like, I've never read a synopsis like this before. And I'm pretty sure those of you who are listening are like, wow, I've never heard a book described like this before. Um, it's basically like this scathing look at the fashion industry while also wrapping up this murder mystery all in there as well. Um, it's gotten some pretty good reviews from different places like Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and stuff like that. And it looks to kind of, like I said, go into the underbelly of this sort of abusive and exploitative industry. So again, that book is called Size Zero by Abigail Mangan, and we thank them so much for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, every every time I see I see that synopsis, the part that gets me every time is like, now a monk. I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> like forget the coat made of human skin. Like it's it's the the transition to becoming a monk that gets me every time. Agreed. And 
I this time I'm going to remember the name of the book and make sure that if I have not ordered a copy of it for my library yet, I will do so immediately and then put myself on hold for it. (laughs) All right. So welcome to the show. If you are a new listener, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, welcome back. So happy to have everyone here with us. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we talk about mysteries and thrillers and suspense and just about anything that falls under that that umbrella. And this is the part of the show where we always put out a call to our listeners to contact us if you have any suggestions for upcoming episodes that you'd like to hear us talk about, whether it's something that's happening in the news, a movie adaptation you you want us to give our take on whether it's a subgenre you're interested in or just looking for read-alikes for a particular author or whatever the case may be. If it's mystery and suspense, it fits. And we have used so many of these ideas that you have sent to us for previous episodes. It helps us plan out what we want to talk about and make sure that the show stays interesting for everyone who listens. And it helps us broaden our horizons because we're getting input from so many different people. And in fact, today's episode is brought to you by a listener-submitted idea. Um, So we will have our contact information at the end of the show, so make sure to make a note of that. If you have sent ideas to us before, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Even if you don't have an idea and just want to chat and say hi, we love that too. So feel free to drop us a note. And... With that, I guess we'll I guess we'll go ahead and jump into today's episode. We'll start off with the news items, which are mostly adaptation news news pieces. Um, but the first one is that if you are familiar with the YA murder mystery "One of Us Is Lying" by Karen McManus, that is going to be getting a TV adaptation. So this book has been described in a bunch of ways, but I think of it like. The Breakfast Club, but with murder. So it's a bunch of high schoolers who are in detention, but not all of them make it out alive at the end. So there isn't a ton of information. It is coming to Peacock. So Peacock is the NBC streaming service, and they have put in a series order for One of Us is Lying. And they they have some casting news and it doesn't look like there's anyone super well-known attached to the show. But they give all the updates in this news item. We'll have links to all of these pieces in the show notes. But if you've read the book and thought that this would make a really good movie or a really good TV show, well, guess what? You were correct. So as we get more information on that, we'll be sure to keep you updated. But this way you can get it on your radar. All right, Peacock must have been doing a lot of like pickups lately, maybe because like it's relatively new, so they need to be picking up stuff. But they've also put into development a series based on Jade City, which is the first book in Fonda Lee's mystery fantasy trilogy, The Greenbone Saga. If you aren't aware, The Greenbone Saga is like this magical family feuding story. So it's basically combines like magic and martial arts, and there's like these two rival clans who are fighting for power and in this world which is based on like 1970s hong kong jade has like specific mystical powers and these two families that are rival families are basically fighting over who has control over jade in this area so there isn't a lot of information about this one just because it just got picked up for development uh, but it was 
adapted by Dave Kalstein, who has worked as a co-executive producer on the USA show Treadstone and the ABC show Quantico. So he has a lot of experience working on these sort of like action-packed TV shows. There's no information in terms of like when this will come out or anything along those lines. But again, this one will be available on Peacock hopefully soon. All right. And then changing tone a little bit from crime, magic, martial arts to kid-friendly <laughs> mystery stories, Apple TV has ordered the first ever animated adaptation of Harriet the Spy. And we don't have a release date for that yet, but that is going to be coming out. They do have a casting update for that. Beanie Feldstein is going to be doing the voice of Harriet and Jane Lynch, who you probably remember best as Sue Sylvester from Glee, is going to be doing the voice of Old Golly Harriet's nanny. So basically all we know is that it's going to be based on the book by Louise Fitzhugh that was originally published in the 60s, and they've got some production information about it. But yeah, this is the first ever animated adaptation of Harriet the Spy. Now, I did not read Harriet the Spy growing up, but I find it a little surprising that it's never been done as an animated series before. I, f I feel like from what I know about the book, that it's just made for that medium. So I'm kind of I'm kind of surprised that this is that it's taken until 2020 for this to be animated, but it looks really cute. Um, and so that again, that one's going to be coming out from Apple TV sometime in the future. I don't have Apple TV or Apple Plus or whatever it's called, but I'm very excited about this. Harry the Spy was like one of my favorite books as a kid, and I also watched the movie adaptation that was like produced by Nickelodeon or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, like, but it was like such a favorite of mine to the point where I used to walk around my suburban neighborhood with a notebook, <laughs> trying to spy on my neighbors and write things down. Of course, I live in like the quietest neighborhood ever and where nothing ever happens. So I had not a whole lot to write in my notebook, but still it inspired me. <laughs> you tried. I you did tried try. so hard to make things happen. It's true. I mean, I'm very glad nothing scary actually does happen in my neighborhood. But man, did I want it to when I was like, you know, 10. Oh my gosh, that is so cute. Rinsey the spy. <laughs> well, anyways, on to something completely different. Well, not completely because it's another adaptation, but this one is a movie. So it's been confirmed that Elizabeth Moss is going to be starring in the film adaptation of Mrs. March, which is a psychological thriller, and it's based on an upcoming novel by Virginia Fado. So this is like kind of wild because I was looking at this and I was like, I'm pretty sure I've heard of this book, but I don't really remember it. And then I realized that it, in the article, it says um, that the book's not actually coming out until August 2021. Oh. So the fact that this adaptation not only has been picked up, but is to the point where they've already cast Elizabeth Moss in it is kind of wild. Um, and part of me is wondering whether or not Moss like really pitched this herself because there is like an actual quote from her or like a quote in the statement that went out um, talking about how she read a copy of the novel in one sitting and was completely captured by it and wanted to star in it as Mrs. March and all this stuff. So I feel like that is more of a plus for the book that's coming out in the future to have someone like Elizabeth Moss say, I love this book so much, I couldn't put it down, and now I want to star in it. So in case you're wondering, a quick synopsis of what this book is about, it follows uh, this polished Upper East Side housewife who unravels when she begins to suspect that the protagonist of her husband's latest best-selling novel is based on her. 
So very interesting sort of uh, teaser there. So if you didn't already have Mrs. March on your radar, I'm sure we all have it on our radar now. And again, there's no real release date for the movie, but the book is coming out in August 2021. See, this is a lesson of me to read these articles more carefully because I, I knew it was based on an upcoming book. I did not realize that the book wasn't even coming out for an entire year. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, part of me does wonder whether or not it's one of those, it was supposed to come out this year and it got pushed to next year because of uh, COVID and everything and the delays in publishing. Mm -hmm. But even still, this is like wild that they're even bothering to like put out this information about this book already. Yeah. All right. And then our last item is technically adaptation news, but in a very bizarre way. But anyway, so earlier, God, was it last? I think it might, it must have been last year. We talked on the show about the New Yorker article that came out about Dan Mallory, who wrote The Woman in the Window under the name A.J. Finn, and about how he had woven this unbelievable web of lies in his real life from saying, I think it was that his mother and brother had died of cancer, they hadn't, that he had some kind of illness or psychological issue. I can't remember the specific details, but he really didn't. And it was this really in-depth look at how he basically created this persona for himself and just kind of became a a best-selling author because The Woman in the Window was an enormous hit. But in the publishing industry, he kind of what he was kind of a loose cannon. No one really knew what to do with him because they were like, I'm pretty sure He's full of you-know-what, but but no one was ever really able to put their finger on it. Well, apparently, they are making a TV show based on Daniel Mallory's actual life as a con man, scam artist kind of thing. And Jake Gyllenhaal is set to star as Daniel Mallory. And, I mean... I'm sure this this series, if it ends up going going through, it's going to be bonkers because any story that talks about someone who has created this alternative life for themselves through all of these lies and deceptions is going to be, I mean, that that in and of itself is just such rich material for entertainment purposes. But there is also something about, hey, this white guy in publishing he tells these lies, he creates mistrust with his colleagues, with the people in his personal life, you know, he does all of this stuff that has a negative effect on everyone. And the consequences of that are that there's going to be a TV show made about his life with a major movie star in the show. And in the article, it's very short, but it's uh, the the uh, director talks about how there's a void in this guy, and he's a scammer, and the series examines white identity and how we as an audience participate in making room for this behavior. And then after that, the article finishes and said, presumably, that means also considering how having Jake Gyllenhaal play you on TV factors into the various questions of participation and reward. So there, yeah, there, there's a real, there's, there's a lot of questions about what this TV series is actually going to accomplish, but that is a thing that is happening. <laughs> and because we talked about the article previously and have, talk, have talked about the issues surrounding Dan Mallory, I had to mention it for this show. It's, it's just so bonkers. 
Yeah, this is one of those stories where originally when I heard about it, I was like slightly infuriated because I was like, why are we making an adaptation about this terrible person? Because I feel like it just is continuing to reward him in some sense by like having someone like Jake Gyllenhaal play him and like bringing him more attention than I think he deserves. But when I saw who was attached to write and direct parts of it, um, her name is Janska Bravo. She's a black woman. And so part of me is hopeful that with a woman of color attached to the project, it'll bring some level of poignancy and hopefully some level of like reflection on the levels of complicitness that needs to happen for someone like Dan Mallory to do this much deceitfulness as well as have like a best-selling novel and that also becomes adapted into a major movie even though it becomes like an open secret that he's like something's wrong with him or something's up with him or you know like it, it was like kind of like this like quiet whispering happening in the publishing world that like there's some weird stuff going on with Dan Mallory and yet no one did anything about it or knew exactly what was going on or like enough of the pieces hadn't really settled into place. But there is a level of complicitness that happens specifically with white males where we just kind of let them get away with stuff more than anyone else, really. Yeah, <laughs> um, literally anyone else. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm kind of intrigued to see like if they lean on that more than anything else, then I think this could be a really interesting series and using someone like Dan Mallory, obviously, like there's plenty of opportunity there to do so. So part of me was like, oh, gosh, this is so terrible. But then at the same time, I'm part of me is hopeful that it'll point out these ways that our society and our world sort of rewards people for bad behavior or like refuses to call out certain people on their BS and things like that. Yeah, no, I I agree. This could, this could either be really insightful or completely miss the mark. I don't know how much in-between area there is. Yeah. But as news comes out, we will we will keep you updated because it is it's a bonkers story to be sure. All right. So before we jump into the main discussion, I have our second sponsor, which is Sandra Brown's new thriller Thick as Thieves. 20 years ago in the dead of night, four seemingly random individuals pulled the ultimate heist and almost walked away with half a million dollars. But by daybreak, one of them was in the hospital, one was in jail, one was dead, and one got away with it. Arden Maxwell, the daughter of the man who disappeared all those years ago, presumably with the money after murdering his accomplice, has never reconciled with her father's abandonment. She returns to her family home in Caddo Lake, Texas, hoping to vanquish the demons of her past. Little does she know, two of her father's co-conspirators are watching her every move. So this is definitely a thriller, but if you are familiar with Sandra Brown, she incorporates a lot of romance into her thrillers as well. So this is would be a really good suggestion for fans of romantic suspense. Publishers Weekly says that there's a really great twist at the end that's going to catch readers by surprise, really inventive action scenes, touch of hot romance, and this book has just been getting a lot of really good reviews everywhere. So if you're a fan of romantic suspense, if you like if you like a, mi a mix of the action and the hot sexy fun, uh, make sure to pick up Thick as Thieves by Sandra Brown, and we thank them very much for sponsoring this episode. All right. So for our main topic of this episode, like Katie mentioned at the top, this was a suggestion from a listener who basically said that their daughter is starting to get into 
middle grade mystery books. I think they said their daughter was about 12 years old. And they were basically just looking to, you know, have us talk about middle grade books in general, whether it be ones that we loved when we were growing up, and then maybe some suggestions for her to pick up. And so what was your like mystery reading life like when you were in like that middle school age, Katie? Well, I I had kind of a few different areas. There was the Nancy Drew, which we've already covered at length. I was a huge, huge Nancy Drew fan. In seventh grade, so when I was about 12, my seventh, my seventh grade English teacher introduced me to the this young adult author named Diane Ho. And this would have been back in the, oh God, when was I in middle school? Early 2000s. And the books themselves, I think, were older than that. So we're talking probably 90s, young adult, like maybe early 90s. And these those books were set on a college campus. And I just remember tearing through them. They were just so suspenseful. And they were darker than most stuff I had read at that point. And I just loved them. And my English teacher had multiple copies of these books in, in her classroom library. So I read a bunch of those. And then that was also when I started reading Michael Crichton novels. Again, partially thanks to my seventh grade English teacher. She got me hooked on the Andromeda Strain and Congo and a couple of other Michael Crichton books. I I think I was 12 when I read Jurassic Park for the first time. So it was pretty much like, yeah, I was either Nancy Drew and this kind of pulp YA mystery area, or it was Michael Crichton. Like there really was not much in between. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. I feel like when I I had to like Google what middle school mysteries were, because I have such a like blur in my brain in terms of what's considered children, what's considered middle grade and what's considered young adult. And especially because like when you're a kid, like you do have some relative guidelines, like especially if you're getting books from like your school library, they might like say like these are the seventh, like the seventh grade ones or the fifth grade ones have this color sticker on them or something like that. But for the most part, like when I would go to the library, I would just go into the children's section and roam. So yeah, I feel like for me personally, the way my brain is set up, I have no sense of time. So like when I just think of like childhood in general, like pre high school age, um, I read a lot of different types of mystery books. I've talked about this, I think before, but like I love the clue books growing up. Uh, Teaser to the book Katie's going to talk about. I'm very excited to hear about this. Oh my god, I'm so excited to talk about it. (laughs) But I also read like Encyclopedia Brown books. I read like the from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basily Frankweiler. Um, I read the Westing Game, all of these different things. So I feel like I like dabbled quite a bit in middle school mystery books. But I feel like also I didn't realize that mystery was the specific thing that I enjoyed until I got older. And I realized sort of like the distinctions between the genres, because I also read like R.L. Stein's Fear Street books as a middle grader, even though I probably shouldn't have been reading those at that age, but whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> and stuff like that. So like, and then like, eventually, I like the next jump for me was like starting to read John Grisham books. Yeah, I read some John Grisham when I was in No, I was in high school when I when I read some John Grisham. But yeah, I yeah. was definitely still like a kid teenager. Yeah, exactly. So like, I feel like for me, mystery series weren't thing well i mean besides nancy drew which again we've both talked about at length mystery series weren't necessarily too much of a thing but like i do have very distinct memories of like 
specifically in the summertime, my local library had a bookmobile, which was amazing. And it would like come to my local park and I would like sit in my mom's window, uh, my like parents' bedroom window, because that's the one that faced the park. And I would like literally wait for the bookmobile to come. And then I would like run out there when it came. And then I would look to see which clue books they had in stock in the bookmobile, because obviously they can't carry all of the books with them. So I would look to see whichever ones they had that week and or yeah, that week and check them out from the bookmobile while returning the other ones that I'd picked up last week and stuff like that. So like, I feel like the clue mysteries are the ones that I remember the most from when I was middle grade. Yeah. And earlier, I I think you you made a good point. Like there's so much overlap between what's considered children's, what's considered middle grade, what's considered young adult, like the book that I'm going to talk about, and I, I promise I will get to that in just a second, but it's technically, like, when it came out, it was, cons- it's categorized as young adult. But when you look at the reviews where they talk about what grade levels it's appropriate for, it says anywhere from 7th to 10th grade. So there, there's a range, and there's so much overlap. And just because you're in a particular grade doesn't mean that you're reading books specifically within that that grade level or yeah. within that Lexile reading range. And that's something that I have to, even though I don't work in the children's department in my library, I do frequently have to tell parents that if it's not for a school assignment, like school assignments will often like, okay, it has to be within this Lexile range or something like that. I'm like, if it's not within the Lexile range, just let your kids read whatever they want. Like, They'll pick stuff that they enjoy, and maybe they'll challenge themselves with something that's a little harder. Maybe they'll find something that's a little bit below their their lexile range, but it doesn't mean they're not reading and enjoying and learning and all this other stuff. So that's my mini, that's my mini little soapbox for for the episode. But the the book that I picked, we have talked about on the show before, just that it was coming out, is In the Hall with the Knife by Diane Peterfreund. And this, if you can't tell by the title, this is a clue young adult mystery novel. And I I picked it up because the person who wrote into us, they said that their daughter had read the Westing game, which they re- which she really liked, but she wasn't a huge fan of Nancy Drew. And they were wondering if, you know, would Agatha Christie be a good suggestion for them? So when I was looking for something to read for this episode, I wanted to pick something that had some of the trappings of a classic Golden Age mystery. And so obviously Clue is like, you think of Agatha Christie, you think of Clue when you think of the Golden Age mystery era. So I thought, okay, this this will be fun to read. You know, okay, I'll, I, I, I picked it up thinking that it would be, you know, like a light, enjoyable read, you know, it'd be okay, fine. Oh my gosh, I loved this book so much. <laughs> I was so surprised by how much I loved this book. If you follow me on Twitter, you saw me tweeting about this last night because I finished it in like a little over two hours in one sitting. And I just, I ran into the bedroom where my husband was getting ready for bed. And I was just like, this book was so good. It was so good. So, I mean, the basic premise is that you have a group of students who are, who attend a boarding school in Maine. All of the students have, they relate to the classic Clue characters. So you've got Scarlet Mystery, you have Vaughn Green, you have uh, an athlete and her na- her nickname is Peacock. There's a kid named Phineas Plum. So you see where I'm going with this. And so all of these kids, some of them know each other, some of them are new. They're at this boarding school and they're about to leave for winter break when this massive storm hits. And they all have to end up taking shelter in this old dorm building, basically, with Mrs. White, who is kind of the dorm mother 
for that particular building and their head their headmaster, Mr. Body. So obviously, if you're familiar with Clue, you know who's going to be the one who ends up murdered here. <laughs> so they're they're kind of cut off from everything in this massive storm. These kids who they, you know, like I said, they some of them know each other, some of them don't, all of them have secrets, and all of them have had some kind of interaction with the headmaster recently that may cast them as the suspect in his eventual murder. And this book... <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's so good. Like, it's it's a classic mystery. It's a classic whodunit. And I have to say, I did guess whodunit, but it didn't matter because it was so enjoyable. And so they have to, they have, they're searching the house for clues. And so they, they're, they're like, oh my gosh, Mr. Body was, was killed in the conservatory with a knife. And so they have to go through all the rooms to find clues. And the book is told from each chapter is from the perspective of a different student. So one of the six students. So you get different perspectives from everyone. You get little bits and pieces of the secrets all of them are trying to keep from one another. And then slowly those secrets come out. And it was just so enjoyable. The characters, it's just such a diverse group of characters. They're well written. Like, even though this has all has a lot of the tropes of a classic mystery, it doesn't feel cliched at all. It's cute, it's clever. Even though this is marketed as young adult, the characters are all, I think, like 16 or 17 years old, thereabouts. I would 100% feel comfortable giving this to a 12-year-old who is interested in mysteries. I there's no there's no disagreeable content other than the fact that there's like a dead body. Like there's no there there isn't any excessive violence. There's no there's no sexual content. I don't even think there's a swear word in this book. Like I mean, I tend to gloss over those swearing just like does not register with my brain anymore, but I'm pretty sure there isn't even a curse word in there. So this it was oh my god it was so good like and the the way the book ends it sets itself up perfectly for a continuation of the story like the mystery gets solved but there's still stuff going on with with some of these characters like most of their storylines like their their secrets that they have like there's still a lot of loose ends that are just begging to be picked up in the second book and i just love this. So surprised by how much I love this book. And I am so excited. I guess the someone on Twitter said that the second book in the series is going to be coming out this October. And I am 100% going to pick it up. But yeah, this book was a delight. So again, that is In the Hall with the Knife by Diane Peterfreund. Uh, it makes me so happy to hear you say that. I like saw your tweet this morning and I like refused to click on the thread to see what the rest of your tweet said because I'm like, I just want to hear Katie talk about it on the podcast when we record. <laughs> it was just one other tweet and it was pretty much that where I was just like, <laughs> oh my God, it was so good. <laughs> but that makes me so happy because I like completely forgot that this book came out. Like I remember being really excited about it because like I had just mentioned, I loved Clue growing up. And so when I saw this and was announced, I was like, oh, this looks so good. And then, you know, too many books, too little time, and it like completely fell off my radar. So I'm really glad you picked this one for this episode because it like reminded me that I need to pick this up. You do. And I I can almost guarantee you will find this like as delightful as I did. You will love this book. All right. So the book that I'm going to talk about for this episode is Liar and Spy by Rebecca Steed. So I have read When You Reach Me, and I read that book a number of years ago, but I read it as an adult. And it was one of those books where... 
I went into it with very low expectations because for me, middle grade, and this is like very much like marketed as like middle grade. Um, so for me, middle grade often is a miss in terms of like me being an adult now <laughs> reading middle grade, which is understandable because it's, these books are not for me. Um, so I feel like it's really rare when I read a middle grade book and I'm like super into it. And I feel like Rebecca Steed is one of those writers who really gets it. And she puts really interesting details and I don't want to call them twists, but the way that she like wraps up all her stories always really take me by surprise. And so, like I said, I read When You Reach Me a number of years ago. And if the person who wrote in is listening to this episode, I definitely recommend picking up that book as well. But obviously, I wanted to pick up something new for this episode. Um, so I decided to pick up Liar and Spy. And this was, oh man, so delightful. I love this so much. Um, so in this story, you are following the seventh grader named George, who his family is moving from their house into a Brooklyn apartment. So they live in New York City in Brooklyn specifically. And they basically have to sell their house because their father loses their job. And they don't have like the money to pay the bills. So they're basically moving into an apartment to save money and things along those lines. And so George is like really sad about this. Um, he's also like not super popular at school. His best friend basically joined the basketball team. And so now he doesn't really have anyone that he talks to at school anymore. And so you follow him over the course of like maybe a couple of months um, while he's in seventh grade. And when he moves to this Brooklyn apartment, him and his dad are down by like the trash bins and they see a sign advertising for like a spy club and so some i don't remember exactly what it says but it has like the general gist of like is anyone interested in joining a spy club and so george's dad is basically like oh that sounds fun and so he writes yeah what time or something along those lines <laughs> and so george is like super embarrassed but then later when he goes back to the bins it says something like how about six thirty? and so George starts says that he feels really bad because he's like, oh, this there's going to be this kid who's going to show up for the spy club and no one's going to be there because my dad wrote this note. And so he decides to join, go to the spy club meeting. And when he's there, he meets this boy named Safer, who's about the same age. And he Safer basically recruits him into joining the spy club and they're sort of mission is tracking this man that Safer calls Mr. X, who lives in the apartment uh, a floor above George, and he wears all black and Safer is determined that Mr. X is up to no good. Um, and so you basically follow them as uh, Safer teaches him thing teaches George about being a spy. Um, George gets to know Safer's family. Um, you also follow a little bit about what's going on with him at school. Um, and this is sort of like the perfect blend of like a contemporary fiction book and a mystery book. Um, this isn't like a true mystery book, because there's not like a whodunit or anything like that. But there is this mystery of what's going on with Mr. X. But also like, as you continue on with the story, you realize there's a little bit more going on here. And I'm not going to say more than that, because I just found the reveal to be so lovely, just so lovely. And I think that's one of the things that's like so great about middle school books, especially reading it as an adult, it can be like such a heartwarming sort of age range in terms of reading and things like that. And especially, you know, 2020, uh, we need more heartwarming things in our lives. So or at least I do. So yeah, I really enjoyed this a lot. I've seen some people say that after reading When You Reach Me, they didn't enjoy Liar and Spy as much. And I can kind of understand it. But honestly, I thought it was great. So again, that one is called Liar and Spy by Rebecca Steed. And I definitely recommend picking it up. 
All right. So if you have any suggestions for middle grade mysteries, either that you loved as a kid or that have come out recently that you loved as an adult or that your kids have liked or whatever the case may be, let us know because middle grade mysteries are not, you know, I, I think I'm safe in saying that neither Rincey nor I are particularly familiar with a bunch of middle grade mysteries. So this is kind of a new, this was kind of a new area for us to explore. And it's, it sounds like we, we both, we, uh, we had good luck with this one. So yay. <laughs> So yeah, if you have any if you have any other suggestions for those, let us know because like Renzi said, it's it's good to have a little bit more heartwarming or at least something something with a little with a little bit of a of a lighter flair to it, so to speak. Yeah, definitely agree. So yeah, with that, we can jump into our new releases. So I'll kick things off with a book that is coming out this week. So it's already out on Tuesday, August 25th. This is called The Unugami Curse. And this is by Seshi Yoko Mizo and translated from the Japanese by Yumiko Yamikaze. So this is being put out by Pushkin Vertigo. And so this is not like a brand new book in terms of like this was originally published like in the 19... 50s or 60s, I want to say, and is now just getting like translated and re-released in English and in the United States. And so this is kind of like a classic murder mystery. Yoko Mizo is considered one of Japan's greatest crime writers. So again, this is just like another book that is being published in English. Um, so this book takes place in 1940s Japan, and the wealthy head of the Unugami clan has died, and his family eagerly awaits the reading of the will. But no sooner are the strange details revealed than a series of bizarre and gruesome murders begin. Detective Kindachi must unravel the clan's terrible secrets of forbidden liaisons, uh, monstrous cruelty, and hidden identities to find the murderer and lift the curse, wreaking its bloody revenge on the Yunugamis. So... If you are a fan of Japanese crime writing, if you like things that have a slightly more classic flair to it, then this will probably be up your alley. Um, And again, that's called The Unugami Curse, and that is by Seshi Yokomizo and translated and translated from the Japanese by Yumiko Yamakazi. All right. So my first pick for new releases, which also comes out this week on August 25th, is a book we have talked about multiple times. This is Winter Counts by David Heska Wandley Wyden. And we've been talking about this book because it's an own voices thriller written by a Native American author. And this book features Virgil Wounded Horse as the main character. And he's what you would call an enforcer on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota. So what that means is that when justice is denied either by the American legal system or the tribal council, Virgil is hired to deliver his own punishment, the kind that's very hard to forget. But when heroin makes its way onto the reservation and finds Virgil's nephew, his vigilantism suddenly becomes personal. So he enlists the help of his ex-girlfriend and sets out to learn where the drugs are coming from and how to make them stop. They follow a lead to Denver and find that drug cartels are rapidly expanding and forming new and terrifying alliances. And back on the reservation, there's a new tribal council initiative that starts raising uncomfortable questions about money and power and who's in charge of what. And as Virgil starts to link pieces together, he must face his own demons and reclaim his Native identity, realizing that being a Native American in the 21st century comes at an incredible cost. So this book is so good. I did read this one. And if you like 
gritty crime fiction, maybe like Don Winslow or something along those lines, this would be a great suggestion. But if you're looking for something that takes the characteristics of a traditional crime thriller and really shows them in a new light by by prominently featuring life on a Native American reservation and the way the way that justice is carried out or not carried out in many cases, it really creates such a unique story. I think this book is really an example of what we are missing when we don't when we when we keep publishing books by traditional white authors and it just highlights exactly how much we need these diverse voices. So anyway, I'm going to I'm going to stop pitching this book, but you definitely need to read it. It's called Winter Counts by David Hesco Wanbley Wyden and it is out already. So go pick it up. All right, my next pick is When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole and this one comes out on September 1st. I'm so excited for this because Alyssa Cole writes some of my favorite uh romance novels and I love her writing and so I'm so excited to see that she's writing a thriller. Um this book is being pitched as Rear Window Meets Get Out, which yes, 1000% <laughs> here for. Me too. <laughs> Uh, you're following Sydney Green, who is was born and raised in Brooklyn. She lives there now. And she's just like seeing how the neighborhood is changing before her very eyes as it becomes more and more gentrified. Um, there's condos sprouting up everywhere, as well as like for sale signs and all the neighbors that she's known all her life are now gone. And so in order to hold on to her community's past and present, Sydney channels her frustration into a walking tour and finds an unlikely and unwanted assistant in one of the new arrivals to the block, her neighbor Theo. But Sydney and Theo's deep dive into history quickly becomes a dizzying descent into paranoia and fear. Their neighbors may not have moved to the suburbs after all, and the push to revitalize the community may be more deadly than advertised. When does coincidence become conspiracy and where do people go when gentrification pushes them out? So yeah, I'm so excited for this book. Again, it comes out next Tuesday and it's called When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole. All right. And then my pick for the last new release is called Sins of the Bees by Annie Lampman. And that comes out next week on September 1st. Quick trigger warning, this synopsis does talk about sexual assault and suicide. So with this book, we have 20-year-old arborist Sylvania August Moonbeam Marigal, and she is alone in the world. After first her mother dies and then her grandfather, Silva, suffers a sexual assault and becomes pregnant. Then, ready to end her own life, she discovers evidence of a long-lost artist grandmother named Isabel. Desperate to remake a family for herself, Silva leaves her island home on the Puget Sound and traces her grandmother's path to first a hippie beekeeper named Nick Larkins with secrets of his own, and then to a religious anti-government Y2K cult embedded deep in the wilds of Hell's Canyon. Len Dietz is the charismatic leader of the Almost Paradise Compound, place full of violence and drama impregnated child brides called the Twelve Maidens, an armed occupation of a visitor center, shot up mountain sheep washing up along with a half-drowned dog, oh dear, and men transporting weapons in the middle of the night. As tensions erupt into violence, Silva, Isabel, Nick, and the members of Almost Paradise find themselves disastrously entangled, and Silva is forced to face both her own history of loss and the history of loss she stepped into, ruinous stories of family that threaten to destroy them all. So this book sounds like it's got a little bit of everything. 
But if you if you like bonkers crime stories with a literary element to them, you will probably want to pick this one up. But again, that is called Sins of the Bees by Annie Lampman, and that comes out on September 1st. All right. So to wrap up our episode, we have the books that we have been re- reading recently or plan on reading soon. Um, so I have two books I want to talk about really quickly. One is another middle grade book that I read a couple of middle grade books or like I basically checked out a bunch of middle grade books for my library in preparation for this episode. Not really sure which way I was going to go for the main topic. But uh, this is another one that I read that I wanted to mention. It's called From the Desk of Zoe Washington. And this is by Janae Marks. And so this story follows Zoe Washington, who it the story starts on her 12th birthday when she gets a letter from her father who she's never met. She never met him because he's in prison for a terrible crime that she doesn't know what he did. Um, she just knows that her father wasn't a good person and went to prison. So she thinks. So she gets this letter and she decides to like secretly start writing to him. Her mother never really wanted her to have any sort of connection or relationship with her father. So she basically like never gave Zoe the opportunity to write to him. And even when she like quickly asks about it, her mother says no. So she writes to him in secret and finds out that her father actually has an alibi for the crime that he committed. And so Zoe decides to look into this crime that her father supposedly committed and trying to figure out whether or not he's actually innocent. Um, so the main reason why I didn't mention it in the main topic for this episode is just because like the mystery element to the story is not super strong and leans heavily into the contemporary side of things. But I did also just really enjoy this book a lot. So I did want to mention it. It's really great the sort of topics that this book covers including like mass incarceration and the treatment of black people um, and things along those lines but obviously does it in a way that works for a middle grade audience so if you are having those kinds of conversations with your kid um, or your kid is in those types of situations this is a really great book to pick up that kind of talks about those types of topics Another aspect is that like Zoe really loves baking and wants to try out for this like kids bake challenge TV show, like a Food Network TV show. Um, And so the entire summer that the story takes place, uh, Zoe is interning at a bakery that her parents friend basically owns. And it's really cute, like watching her come up with like an original baking item, food item. (laughs) That's a weird way to say it, but I think you know what I mean. But yeah, if you, again, just more middle grade fiction uh, to recommend. So that one, again, is called From the Desk of Zoe Washington by Janae Marks. The other book uh, I picked up recently was Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. This book came out earlier this year, um, I think just last month, actually. And it's been getting a decent amount of buzz, so I definitely wanted to pick this one up. This one is very much in like the sort of action-packed thriller category so if you are looking for something fun and fast-paced for reading at the like end of summer maybe you want to pick something up for the labor day holiday or something like that if you live in the united states this would be really really fun it has like fast and the furious sort of vibes to it uh, because you are following this character named bug or his real name is beauregard everyone calls him bug Now he's like a father and has his own mechanic shop, but he basically used to be like a getaway driver on the East Coast. And he picked this up from his father. Um, His father was also like a getaway driver for thieves. And but his father disappeared when he was a kid. And so now he's basically trying to live on the straight and narrow, but he gets into basically like a dire financial situation because another repair shop has opened up in in town and has been undercutting prices. And so they haven't been getting as much business. And so in order to basically make ends meet, 
he decides to pick up one more job. And obviously that job does not go to plan. So yeah, this is, again, just like a really, really fun book. If you're looking for something super character driven, this is not it. Uh, but like I said, it very much has the vibe of like a Fast and the Furious type of movie. This is 1000% something that needs to be picked up if it hasn't already been picked up for a film because like just reading these scenes, I could visualize all of these really amazing racing car scenes and stuff like that. So someone please adapt this into a movie because it's meant to be that. Um, and if you, again, want something fast paced to pick up or just have been hearing the good buzz about it, um, it's really great sort of combination of a thriller and like Southern noir book. So again, that's called Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. All right. So yeah, for me, this has been the year of books picked up and not finished. So um, I haven't finished anything recently other than the book I talked about earlier. But I did start reading the latest Riley Sager book, Home Before Dark. And Riley Sager has become the author I turn to when I need something that's not, it may not be particularly innovative, but it's like my popcorn book. And I, I just, I'm like, I want something that I know exactly what I'm going to get, but it's still going to entertain the pants off of me. So Riley Sager, with each of his books, they feature a different trope that you typically will find in horror movies. And each one has very much has the feel of a particular horror movie or a genre of horror movie. So Final Girls was like the classic 80s slasher movie. This his second one, which of course I'm forgetting, had the feel of like Friday the 13th or the creepy summer camp by the lake in the woods kind of thing. And so this one, Home Before Dark, is his take on the Amityville horror style haunted house story. Or if you watched the Netflix version specifically of Hill House, The Haunting of Hill House, this very much fits into that type of haunted house story. Um, but basically, the main character, um, when she was five years old, her parents, she and her parents moved into this really old mansion. And they only ended up staying there for like three and a half weeks before they fled in the dead of night. They left all their stuff behind. And her father ended up writing this book about their experiences. And it kind of became a book like The Amityville Horror and just created a lot of notoriety, a lot of drama in her childhood growing up. And now as an adult, her father has just recently passed away and she's shocked to learn that he actually has always has continued to own that house. He has left it to her in his will, but he tells her, don't go back there. It's not safe for you. And she knows that she very firmly believes that her father just made everything up for his book. And she wants to get to the truth of what actually happened. So she actually has a job renovating and flipping houses. So she goes there thinking, okay, I'll spruce the place up. I'll sell it. And hopefully in the meantime, I will uncover some secrets about what happened. And of course, it's going to get dark and creepy. And she's going to find stuff that she didn't expect. So I'm not terribly far in the book. She has only, she's only been at the house for like a day. And the story alternates between her experiences as an adult revisiting the house again and chapters from the book that her father wrote. So it's kind of like, so it's a story within a story. And so you get these two opposing viewpoints. And it's one of those stories where like you get these little pieces and you kind of have to put the story together yourself which is, I love books like this. So I've only sat down with it a couple of times, but I'm already like over 100 pages into it. But again, that is Home Before Dark by Riley Sager. 
And that is our show. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. Thank you to our sound editors, Jen Zink, for always making us sound great. For show notes, you can head over to bookriot.com slash listen. There will be links to all of the articles that we mentioned at the top of the show, as well as links to all of the books that we mentioned here today. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, definitely leave us a review on Apple Podcasts because that really helps us out and helps other people discover our podcast. If you want to send us an email with feedback or show suggestions, you can find us at redordead at bookriot.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Rincey A. And I'm on Twitter at KT underscore library lady. And we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.